Good morning, indeed you are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. We are back from our long weekend break and ready to bring you all the Aussie news you might not have heard on your sound waves. First up, did you know that there are going to be radical changes to the way your superannuation money is being handled? We have Xavier O'Halloran, Acting Director of the Superannuation Consumers Centre, a consumer advocacy group choice, chatting to us about the super shakeup taking place from July 1 and why over 3 million people haven't even heard about it. And after that, we're going to be speaking to Rhonda Itawi from Western Sydney University, talking to us about the experiences of Muslim Australians based on where they live and work and how the geography of Islamophobia is affecting them today. We'll be discussing all that later on in the show, but as always, we want to hear from you. How much do you know about your super? Do you even know how much money you have in there? Because I certainly don't. <laughs> uh, text us in on 0409 945 945. That's 0409 945 945. Or tweet us at FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Do you have a life or disability insurance? Are you a migrant or unemployed? Have you recently moved house? Then you might be at risk of facing the consequences of upcoming superannuation changes, changes which could see many people losing significant amounts of money. We've got Xavier O'Halloran with us here in the studio. He's the acting director of the Superannuation Consumer Centre at Choice, and will be chatting to us about the super shakeup affecting millions of Aussies from July 1. Welcome to the show, Xavier. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's just start off. What's going on? Can you describe the superannuation changes to us? Yeah, so there's been a real problem with duplicate accounts out there. There's about 10 million of them, and these are accounts that are draining people's savings. And so the government introduced changes to the law earlier in the year, which saw the insurance of people, um, if the accounts have been inactive for 16 months, see the insurance turned off, or for people that have low balances, below $6,000, for that money to be auto-consolidated with an active account. Um, And why do you think that is? Why is it that so many people might be unaware of these changes even existing? Yeah, so a lot of people don't even know that they've got insurance in their superannuation in the first place. There was a study recently which found about a quarter of people had no idea they were paying for insurance premiums. And it's important people do know because it's quite expensive um, for some cover. And it, um, it can be really important also if you ever need to make a claim because you um, or your family needs to make a claim because you pass away or you become disabled and can no longer work. So... Do you know much about the process or why the government are making these changes? Yeah, a big factor behind it was there was a big study which found that people who are paying for um, insurance in their superannuation are trading away about $80,000 in their retirement balance um, through insurance premiums paid across their entire life. So it's quite expensive. Um, so we really need to make sure that people who've got inactive accounts are out there aren't paying for extra insurance that they won't end up needing. is a lot of money at stake. Um, So who 
in society is probably most at risk of losing money through these changes? Yeah, so the funds are required to contact people and let them know about what's going on, but we've been collecting a lot of these notices off the funds, and they're not great. You're talking about, you know, five pages long, spreadsheets trying to explain how much you're actually paying for your insurance, and really unclear information uh, to help people decide whether they need to keep their insurance going. So a lot of people don't really have the financial literacy to unpack a lot of this, and they may not even receive the letters if they've moved house recently, or they have um, difficulty understanding English as well as a, a big barrier to understanding what's going on with your super. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking to Xavier O'Halloran from the Superannuation Consumers Centre at Choice, chatting to us about the super shakeup affecting millions of Aussies. And we've got some texts in because people love talking about super. Oh. We've got Kayla from Bankstown, uh, and they've said, I have absolutely no idea how much money I have in my super account, and I haven't even heard of these changes. Am I completely screwed? Is she completely screwed? No. Look, you've got you've still got a bit of time. July 1 is the cutoff date, so I'd really encourage you to um, log into MyGov now. If you haven't already, link up your ATO account to your MyGov account because then you can actually check where your superannuation balances are and you can check how much super you've got. Um, and that'll allow you to track it down, then get in tr- contact with the super fund and find out what insurance you've got and how it might be affected by these changes. Xavier, can I say very quickly that you are quite a compelling um, advocate for checking on your super, but you know who is more compelling? The Barefoot Investor. <laughs> and after I read that book, I went home and I, I actually finally did, even though you told me, check your super, I was like, Xavier, please, I'm fine. And then I read The Barefoot Investor. Oh, and then I checked my super accounts and I had... Five different super wow. accounts, and I had like a hundred dollars in one, and like a couple of thousand in another one, and then I consolidated it, and now I have I have still not a lot of money, but it's in the one super account. So you and Scott Pape, thank you so much. Yeah, I can't compete with Scott Pape. He's no. pretty impressive. He's- <laughs> but honestly, as a young person, I've never really. Like, it feels so far away, the idea of using a super fund. And with that in mind, uh, research from the Association of Superannuation Funds Australia has shown that 40% of young people have no idea what's in their super balance or really care. And a further 16% only have a really vague idea. So in lights of these changes, um, what can we do to help young people understand superannuation or really kind of give a crap? Or should they? Is retirement even in the cards for us? I don't know. Help me. Yeah, I think it's about making it um, more about the now. So um, if you're thinking about insurance, for example, you're probably paying anywhere between about 5 to $15 a week for insurance premiums. Um, and that's going to be eating away at what you eventually are going to need to retire on. So it's something worth checking on right now and finding out, well, is the insurance that I've got appropriate for what I need? Um, do I have people who are financially reliant on me? Um, what's going to happen to them if I pass away or can't work anymore? Um, really make it about the now and go and check what's going on with your super. So could you give us kind of kind of break down the instructions? You go to the MyGov website and in, on top of consolidating your multiple super accounts, which I'm sure a lot of young people have, um, what other steps should they look at to make sure that they're saving their super correctly? Yeah, so once you've logged into MyGov, you need to link uh, your MyGov account to ATO, which a lot of people would have done around tax time. It's the kind of thing that you can set up at at that time. 
Um, that allows you to click on to a new little link. There's a little, I think the, there's a little picture of a piggy bank, um, is <laughs> how, what it looks like. Click on that and it'll show you all your, my, uh, all your superannuation accounts. Um, and that way you can track down where your super is. You can even consolidate through that website. So, um, that's a good first step as well. But things to be aware of when you're consolidating is, um, checking what the fund performance is for the different funds. Make sure you're not consolidating into a, a really bad fund. Um, and also check what insurance you've got in, um, those funds. So it's worth getting in contact with your superannuation fund and, um, checking those types of things before you go about consolidating. Could you explain to us what fund performance means? Yeah. So the way it's reported is um, the basically what the returns are um, each year in your super fund. So you, you're looking usually something around 8 to 10% if you're in a relatively good fund. If you're in a poor performing fund, it was probably something a lot less than that. Um, and you also got to look at funds. So the rule of thumb, uh, uh, sorry, fees, and the rule of thumb around fees is the average is around 1%. Um, if you're paying anything more than that, you're definitely getting ripped off. Um, paying anything less than that, and you're probably in a pretty good um, fund as well. So um, that's important to keep in mind because half a percent in fees is worth about $100,000 by the time you retire. So really shaving those small amounts of fees off can mean huge savings later in life. So Xavier, $100,000 at the end of the day, uh, like, I don't know if that is that going to be enough to survive. Like at sixty-five is what preserva- preservation age at this point? Preservation age being the age at which you're allowed to like retire by the government. Help me if that's the wrong definition. Yeah, that's pretty much right for people who are a bit older. Um, but for younger people, it's been pushed up to sixty-seven. So Yay, <laughs> you have to wait now. a little bit longer <laughs> before right. you can get, get hold um, of that money. Um, so is the system then benefiting young people? Um, well, it, it really depend, comes down to a question of how much you need to retire on. And there's a few different factors that go into that. Superannuation is one of the things that we'll need when we retire. The other thing is things like secure housing. So if you own your own home, that's obviously a huge benefit into retirement. Um, you might have savings outside of super. And a lot of people, probably the majority of people, are still going to be um, using some portion of the age pension as well to help supplement what they've got in retirement. So it's not all about what's in your super savings that you'll be trying to uh, live off in retirement. Xavier, there's been a debate going on about uh, to allow young people to kind of enter the housing market, whether they can dip into their superannuation fund. And because it's so far away, 67 feels like a millennia away. It's not. Um, What's your opinion on that debate? And is it kind of worth it, maybe, in your opinion? Look, superannuation gets looked at as a bit of a magic pudding sometimes. Everyone, it's a big pot of money and um, it's very tempting to solve all the problems out there with um, accessing super. But I think, you know, there are definitely other steps that um, could be taken to make housing more affordable for younger people without dipping into their retirement savings and potentially, you know, robbing them of a better retirement down the track. So um, any of those kind of policies I would really urge caution on. Xavier, we love having you on the show. Thank you for spreading the gospel about checking your superannuation. Um, and we really urge you guys, 1st of July, those changes come into place. So make sure you log on to the MyGo website and check that out and tell your friends and tell your family. Uh, that was Xavier O'Halloran from the Superannuation Consumer Center at Choice. And stay tuned because after this song, we're talking about the ways in which geography influences the lives of Muslim Australians and the implication that mapping Islamophobia may have on their lives and experiences as Muslim Australians. But for now, here's a song. This is Earthquake by Tyler, the Creator. 
the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative to talk back. The 2005 Cronulla riots have often been seen as a turning point in Australian Islamophobia. A series of race riots and outbreaks of mob violence in Sydney aimed towards Muslim people. Today, Muslim Australians in Sydney are still feeling the ramifications of this racism, but the ways in which these experiences manifest may depend on where they live and work. Rhonda Itawi from the Challenging Racism Project has looked into this. And she's here uh, with us uh, to help us unpack her research on the phone with us. Hi, Rhonda. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. Thank you so much. So, Rhonda, do you think there's been a shift in attitudes towards Muslims in the West post 9-11 and uh, post the Cronulla riots? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, most Australians would probably agree that since 9-11 and the Cronulla riots, um, the religion of Islam or uh, the social group of Muslims have just increased on the world stage and what we consume in the media um, has increased. And there's probably been somewhat a level of disproportionate reporting um, about Muslim social groups across Australia and across the world. Um, I think it's quite important to note, um, you know, as a researcher that's looked into the phenomena of Islamophobia, that these, this rise in anti-Muslim attitudes didn't really start in nine, or post-9-11, uh, that there's been a steady um, demonization of Muslim groups and this kind of this notion that there's a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West prior to 9-11. However, I think 9-11 was definitely a turning point in um, this increased media attention of, uh, of Muslim social groups and of Islam um, within mainstream media. When I think about uh, the Cronulla riots, though, in particular... I would say uh, the Cronulla riots highlighted the negative impact of that post-9-11 um, media reporting around Islam as um, a religion of terrorism or uh, Muslims as um, instigators of terrorism. So nine, uh, the 9-11 would probably be the turning point, and then the Cronulla riots was really this highlighted the impact of that negative um, media reporting on Australian attitudes towards Muslims. Rhonda, have you personally been affected growing up as Muslim Australia in Sydney? Oh, well, I was fairly young when 9-11 occurred. Uh, I think I was in year three, year three at the time. So I think I've definitely grown up in this, you know, this war on terror kind of political environment. And um, I actually attended a Catholic school. So we, my whole family, we all grew up Muslim, but attended Catholic schools across Sydney. So um, I think I was the most negatively impacted among my siblings, however, because I was so young when it occurred. So there was an increase in anti-Muslim attitudes, and I actually started to see the way that Muslims were being perceived negatively when we weren't actually being perceived that way. Uh, so I experienced Islamophobia throughout my entire schooling, um, up until year 12, and it always influenced like the type of essays I wrote or the research that I did because I was very interested in what, what was actually occurring and understanding why it was happening in the first place. Uh, so I would definitely say my schooling was the, was the most difficult time uh, in terms of experiencing Islamophobia. Um, and since then, it's been something that I'm interested in understanding more. Rhonda, speaking to your research now, uh, your research is about the geography of Islamophobia. Just how does geography fit into the broader discussion of racism, especially towards young Muslim Australians like yourself? Awesome. That's a really great question. Thank you. Um, 
So my work, my undergrad work was in urban planning and I was really interested in understanding the way social groups belong or don't belong in different parts of, um, of a city or, try, or how to make a city more inclusive of different cultural groups as cities around the world become more and more multicultural. So my work kind of stems from this notion that in a really highly mobile world, so our, the way that we move across and move between spaces kind of reflects how much power we have. Um, the way that we belong in different parts of the city, it reflects our, our social power or our citizenship. So if we um, have a strong sense of belonging, we can generally access different parts of the city. So what I was particularly interested in how belonging in space was one of the core issues at the heart of the Cronulla riot. So rioters were telling Muslims and Arab Australians in particular where they do or don't belong and that they, they essentially don't belong in Cronulla. So we can see that um, where we belong varies uh, varies across our racial groups or um, vary depending on diversity and to an extent are managed uh, by people who think that they can tell people where they belong or where they don't belong. So um, my work is interested in that geography. You write about spaces in Sydney as being social and cultural in character, not just physical. How do these cultural boundaries affect how Muslim Australians experience and engage in public spaces across the city? Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, speaking back to my work on how I'm interested in the way, like, space reflects your power and how much you can move across them. Um, the work that I did in on the Muslim Australian experience of geography kind of categorises places into, like, places of belonging, uh, places of exclusion or places of neutrality. Um, I found that young Muslims in Sydney in particular chose to live, work or engage in spaces of belonging, which were those that had like higher levels of cultural diversity and most importantly, a stronger in-group presence of other Muslims in those areas. And the experiences of racism increased the need for these places of belonging um, and they increased the likelihood of Muslims choosing to engage in these places of belonging. Um, secondly, I found that there were places of exclusion. So, especially areas like Sutherland and the North Shore were ranked as places of exclusion where Muslims um, tended to avoid using those spaces. Uh, so, we, these strategies that were used in these places of exclusion varied from like avoidance, um, being super vigilant when using those spaces, or traveling in groups when they were in um, regions of Sydney where they thought they might face Islamophobia. And again, this really impacts where people um, are willing to like travel to, where they're willing to work or live in. And um, we can see how this is actually like influencing the geography of diversity in Sydney. So people are choosing to um, refrain from using certain spaces or from living in certain regions. The way that our geography of diversity looks like in the future will start to be shaped um, and maybe maybe shaped by ge- uh, this geography of racism as well. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking to Rhonda Itawi from Western Sydney University about the experiences of Muslim Australians and how Islamophobia affects the way in which they engage in public spaces in the West. Rhonda, you're particularly focused on Western Sydney. I know you've just discussed various other regions of Sydney right now as well, but in your research you tend to talk quite a bit about Western Sydney. Why are you so interested in this region? Uh, was there anything about your research into this area that surprised you? Yeah. Um, I, when I conducted my research, I didn't really have any geographies that I was focused on. I just wanted to gauge 
how young Muslims perceived Islamophobia across the city. And one of the major findings that, are, that emerged was that Western Sydney was ranked as the safest um, place of belonging amongst Muslims and in Sydney. And I found that this was really interesting because of the way that Western Sydney is portrayed by the media as being a site of like danger, it's been, it's been criminalised and demonised as somewhere that is unsafe, yet young Muslims ranked this as the safest place among Muslims. Uh, uh, the safest place in Sydney, sorry. And I found this really interesting because it can be compared with research conducted in Paris uh, by researchers Kalta Najib and Peter Hopkins. And they found that French Muslims similarly felt a greater sense of safety in the banlieues of Paris, so the suburbs. And these are the suburbs that are also, by, the, by French media, commonly constructed as being marginalised and disadvantaged. Yet these suburbs were the places that they felt most safe. So it pointed to Western Sydney because it's a, state, a place of um, largest Muslim residents in Sydney was ranked as being least Islamophobic. So this may be a bit off topic, but you talk about public spheres in terms of physical spaces in your work. Um, but I'm curious, uh, with social media somewhat expanding the notion of what we deem is the public sphere, does this affect the way in which Islamophobia arises? Yeah, that, that is such a great question because it's something that I've actually been thinking about myself in my work. And um, especially as a young person that uses the internet quite frequently, we see that we're actually engaging in this other sphere more than we are in the public sphere. And it is a place where we have our opinions shared. Um, my research into the geography of Islamophobia in Sydney at the time didn't look into that space. However, my research in the San Francisco Bay Area that I conducted between 2016 and 2018 did. And I looked at the experiences of Islamophobia online, and they were, um, they were very high as well. So what I'm interested in capturing now, and probably in future research, is seeing the way that experiences on the online sphere or online media affect the way Muslims engage in the, pub, in the physical public sphere, and to see if there's a relationship between the two. So I don't have answers to it, but I do think it's a really important um, body of work that should be that should be explored, and I'm hoping to be able to do that with young Muslims or other um, ethnic and racial minorities around the world. Rhonda, you've spent some time in the San Francisco Bay Area in the United States doing the same research. How do you find uh, how do you find um, your research compares between the two regions? Yeah. Um, so the work in the San Francisco Bay Area to me pointed to different types of Islamophobia that than what was experienced in Sydney. So the experience of um, like slurs or verbal abuse were higher in Sydney than they were in the San Francisco Bay Area. But a lot of young Muslims in uh, my case study overseas spoke about very subtle forms of Islamophobia in the workplace um, and very like nuanced versions of this racism that they couldn't quite pinpoint. So it was very interesting to see that Islamophobia actually like looked different and the way that it was experienced was different in the San Francisco Bay Area. However, young Muslims that I, re- that I um, conducted the research with were quite um, socioeconomically advantaged in the San Francisco Bay Area. They worked in Silicon Valley. They were young professionals that um, were working for big tech companies on the most part and therefore had some more social capital to resist Islamophobia. Um, there were also a lot of political organisations um, that were formed by Muslims in that local area that gave them more political power to resist Islamophobia on a local level. However, that type of political power was absent in Sydney. So it was very interesting to see um, the way in which that 
civic and political engagement among a population overseas gave them more power to resist Islamophobia than what we see here in the local context in Sydney. Rhonda, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for chatting with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Rhonda Itawi from Western Sydney University speaking to us about her research into mapping Sydney's Islamophobia and the role geography has in that. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Before we go, we just want to mention to any aspiring or current audio storytellers that you have the opportunity to apply for the Jesse Cox Audio Fellowship, which will support Australian storytellers, offering an annual $20,000 grant for innovative audio work, as well as mentoring and network building. We'll be tweeting out a link to the application uh, on our Twitter page. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Xavier Halloran and Rhonda Itawi. We'll catch you all next week. But before we do, here's Ready by Montaigne. <laughs>